Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. And good morning, everyone. Happy Saturday to everyone, and welcome to Perf Web 81, day number three. And uh, we want to thank everyone for being here with us this morning. We're going to have an interesting program. We're going to be displaying, you can bring it, but thank you. We're going to be displaying Sim Man uh, today and doing some really cool simulations. Thank you so much. And we've got a great faculty today, as you can imagine, right next to me, Kimberly Sperlin. But real, before I do your introduction, I'm just going to go through real quick. If you want to uh, reach out to us for whatever reason, just contact us at contact at perfusioneducation.com. There you see it down at the bottom of the screen. Our call-in number, it'll be on all the time. You're welcome to call in whenever it's convenient. If you'd like to be live on the air, make a comment. Um, our scroll bar that you see going down the screen right there has all of our information. Perfweb.us, register at perfusioneducation.com, how to subscribe to our YouTube channel, how to do uh, LinkedIn and Twitter and all that stuff. Make sure you like us, give us thumbs up, follow us, share us, all that kind of stuff. Um, our MediWeb app, do you have our MediWeb app? I'm very concerned about that, but it's on our, it's on our, it, you can find it on the iTunes store and you have two apps. You have the critical care application for perfusionists, but really it shouldn't be titled that because it's really good for ECMO specialists, critical care nurses, critical care docs, nurse practitioners, whomever, um, who would be dealing with perfusion related things. And we have a second standalone app. And what's really cool about the critical care app is you've got perfusion quick calcs, like you're going in to do a case. You can put the patient's height, weight, um, starting hematocrit, things like that. And it'll spit out everything you need from your heparin dose to your predicted hematocrit uh, after dilution from the bypass machine. You know, what your priming volume need is going to be, what your... You know, just various different things that flow rates, everything that you need all in one, just enter the data of the patient and it all calculates it for you and gives it to you. So that's really kind of cool. And there's within that a uh, IV uh, dose and rate calculator. And that's incorporated in the big app. It's only $2.99. You're going to have it before the end yes. of the day. And uh, <laughs> exactly. It's like you're going to download it for me. And, uh, <laughs> but anyway, and then there's a standalone IV dose uh, rate calculator that you can get uh, if you're a nurse in the critical care unit. It's very useful. Um, our pod, All of our programs go over podcast, and you can listen to us on whatever your favorite podcast streaming software may be, and uh, we'll go from there. Okay, so moving on from that, uh, today we're going to be talking about transfusion thresholds and coagulation assessments of patients, specifically in, it's, we're talking about the critical care unit, we're talking about ECMO, but first I want to introduce Kimberly Sperlis, who's been with our program before. You were the ICU manager, director, manager, manager. at uh, Memorial Hermann, yeah. the Woodlands Hospital. Uh, where did you go to nursing school? Originally started Tomball College and then went back to school for my BSN at UT Arlington and finished my MSN there. That's right. And then now you're a nurse practitioner right. practicing at uh, St. CHI St. Luke's mm -hmm. and working in the CV service with Dr. Mark Matoyer. Correct. And you're doing uh, 
assisting during surgery, harvesting vein endoscopically, mm -hmm. and then also managing both the patients on the floor, the ECMO patients in the ICU, seeing clinics. So what do you think about the transition going from bedside nursing, critical care unit for many, many, many years, doing that level of, of care, and then also just management in the critical care unit to your new role. How's that feel? Love it. You love it? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally different. Totally different. Lots of autonomy. Mm -hmm. Great doc to work with. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you have to have that, right? You have mm -hmm. to have the support of the whatever physician is your, I'm not sure what they- Supervising. Is that a supervising mm -hmm. physician, right? But, uh, but, but really, I mean, it, it, you know, if you have to ask them everything, they have to trust you and mm -hmm. you have to trust that they support you, right? Yes. Because medicine is an imperfect, is an imperfect art. Always and changing. <laughs> it's always changing. And, you know, you do something, you choose to do X, but someone else who may be a physician would have choose, chosen Y, but another physician who chose X, they may not criticize as quickly. Do you ever see that? And you know you have to have the backup support of your surgeon to say that was a very reasonable thing to do, or do you, does that exist? Absolutely. Okay, so that does exist. Mm -hmm. And that's, you think that's ego more than it is anything else? A bit of ego, some of it different training backgrounds, experience levels. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's another, and I apologize to everyone. I know I'm off topic here, but yeah, I find this very fascinating because I think you bring up a very good point is there's a lot of really smart physicians who have never had to take care of a patient. Correct. And, but they're really smart people and they get trained in a totally different way. Their, 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 their core curriculum is a bit different but they don't have that 10, 15 years of hands-on management of patients and seeing how so many different physicians manage the very same problem mm -hmm. and gaining that experience as a critical care nurse and then transitioning to nurse practitioner. I, I, you know, both are very important, but I think both on their own merit um, are are critically necessary, right? You have Absolutely. to have this academic, you know, well, the data, well, I don't, you know, from your perspective, well, I don't care what the data says. I know what my eyeballs say. Yeah. And so you have Patients that. Patients never read the books. They don't. They don't. <laughs> In fact, Sim Man over there, he hasn't read nothing yet. His eyes are open, but I don't think there's really any good communication connection. I think Nobody that, home right now. I, no, I don't think there's anybody there. But I'll bet if we put a cerebral oximetry on him, it would read something that would be that would be that would be uh, 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 indicative of life. <laughs> yes. So, you know. Yeah, exactly. Patient or pumpkin. I don't know if you ever remember exactly. that article. Do you remember that article <laughs> yes. I talked about once before? Okay, so several things that happen a lot when we're managing these critically ill patients, and you're going to see especially ECMO patients, which is sort of, I guess, where my focus may be, but just post-op cardiac patients who may be bleeding. Um, you recently had one of those you brought back mm -hmm. and found nothing that was mm -hmm. actively bleeding, really. But there was still a lot of bl enough blood in the chest tubes to have to take the ba patient back to the operating room uh, for re-exploration. But, uh, but there are some very unique 
characteristics of managing transfusions when you're dealing with really sick patients in comparison to patients who may be younger, otherwise healthy, trauma, mm -hmm. that they can overcome that with a much lower uh, hematocrit than can somebody who's maybe 56, 57, didn't, doesn't really take very good care of themselves and now finds themselves in, uh, you know, basically the fight, of, the fight of their life or fight for their life. And where is the appropriate uh, uh, hematocrit for that? Where is the, when do we transfuse red and yellow and, and platelets and all of that kind of stuff? I know there's an algorithm for mass transfusion and we may not necessarily be talking about that, but there's, there's, there's definitely a system, a science behind it and how do we measure it and what are we really looking for and what do we really want? So with that said, ECMO Transfusion Thresholds is the title of your talk. Yes, sir. Oh, hold on a second, guys. I need to share the iPad. Um, uh, how do I do that? I forgot. It, oh, yeah, mirror, 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 mirroring. So I have to be on the main screen or the... the oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, the little top edge. Thank you. And then it's that, screen mirroring, and it goes to Joe's iMac. Correct. Joe's iMac. There. Oh, I clicked it twice. I'm sorry. Wait. There it is. It's working? Yes. Okay. And then back to this. There you go. We're good? Thank you. Okay. So just a little discussion on ECMO transfusion thresholds. And there's not really a whole lot of hard and fast data out there that says exactly when you should put what kind of patients in which areas. So it is very patient dependent, very provider dependent, um, and makes it challenging when you go to have a discussion among providers as when one wants to transfuse, one doesn't. And that's where experience comes into play in managing multiple different patient populations. So just a little um, information on critically ill ECMO patients, management concerns, obviously oxygen delivery, tissue perfusion, hemodynamic support, your circuit, your goals of therapy um, are going to change where your thresholds are. Are you talking about a bridge to recovery versus bridge to transplant? Obviously, if you're considering transplant, you're going to go on your lower thresholds um, and your patient bleeding risk. So do, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Can I, can, I, can mm -hmm. I sort of weave some stuff in here? Absolutely. Bridge to recover versus transplant. Okay. Are you going to elaborate on that or can we elaborate on it now? Can we elaborate on it now. Okay. So I think that's a very great point because, you know, transfusions though I am a lot more liberal, I want people to have oxygen delivery and I want them to have oncotic pressure and I want them to have buffer. But if they're going for transplant, how does transfusions affect that, uh, that, that transplant uh, recovery? So they really want you to run on the lower threshold with them um, just because all the um, immune mediator responses that you get, the potential for antibodies to form, um, 
is why they really want to minimize that and specifically run them on lower thresholds, letting them linger as low as seven and staying there Mm -hmm. uh, and really holding off on transfusions, which makes it difficult when you're in the middle and you're still trying to decide, is this a recovery patient or is this a transplant patient? And you might miss that window on a recovery because you're running the lower ones, extend your vent days, um, induce all kinds of barotrauma, and now you've kind of backed yourself into a corner and you're going transplant. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the tough challenge where, again, kind of provider experience, making a judgment call early on as to where you really feel like this patient is going and how aggressive you're going to be and proactive versus reactive, just like mm-hmm. we've had multiple discussions with CRT and initiating that early on, don't wait. Um, and same thing with ECMO, when you talk about putting patients on, you know, some of the providers that really want to hesitate and they see it as a last ditch. Well, if you're waiting till the last minute to put somebody on, you're obviously reducing your risk of success of coming off, right? Well, yeah. Your chances yeah. of success. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's what we're doing right now. Yeah. Somebody that's been lingering for since January mm-hmm. and I, 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 you know, and no one wants to see anybody die. Um, especially if they're younger, but you have to be realistic. I think you lost you, the window. I mean, like, yeah, three months ago mm-hmm. or four months ago. Yeah. I mean, it was January. Yeah. Yeah. It's a problem. But anyway, with that said, I don't mean to belabor that point. Let me let you continue. Okay. That was good information though, about the, uh, about the transplants, because I think that is a very real problem. Mm-hmm. And I think people somewhat underappreciate the immune mediated response that we see when we give patients transfusions you know that's not you know there's some people that believe and i think it's reasonable that it is actually a tissue transplant not just a trend a benign transfusion that's only going to help the patient Mm -hmm. there are definitely downsides to transfusions absolutely but there's downsides to anemia right So just a little bit about threshold parameters, Um, definition-wise, restrictive runs seven to nine. The kind of median uh, is eight, and then they're calling liberal now uh, 10 to 12. Risks and considerations associated with transfusions, obviously infection, your immune-mediated reactions, um, TACO, which is transfusion-associated circulatory overload, trolley, the transfusion-related acute lung injury, your antibody formation, uh, big consideration with all of the facilities now, regardless of patient population, is uh, the cost associated with it, and of course, uh, availability. Um, we just don't have the product available, and considering what patients to utilize it in versus just emptying the blood bank for nothing yes well that's a very good point um and you know i i we uh, did a program with vanderbilt yesterday mm-hmm. uh, day two for those of you who may have watched yesterday as well um and i made the comment because they're doing now you know informatics and 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 electronic charting and data collection autom- automated for uh for bypass cases and ecmo cases um, and that process alone, to have access to that data, is incredibly expensive. Mm. Incredibly expensive. And 
you know, for a even a robust cardiac uh, community cardiac hospital like we have, 300 hearts a year, um, multiple ECMOs per year, is that really enough to really be meaningful when it comes to data, unless mm -hmm. you're collecting that data from multiple sites and then sharing collating them all mm -hmm. together and actually comparing a larger volume because you're you know it's it it may be it may be suggestive but you're never going to reach an end that's going to be meaningful in you know without going through maybe four or five years mm -hmm. so it's uh it's it's a real challenge how often does trally actually occur <sighs> Not as often as I think people would like to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think so. I, unless you're doing yeah, m a massive, massive transfusions. Yeah. I think, but, but a single or double trans two, one or two units of pack cells. I mean, I really, I've, I've never really seen trally in a, you know, couple, two to four units of pack cells given over two to three days um, or maybe on a perfusion case in the heart lung machine where we give it there. I really haven't, uh, haven't I've experienced probably it. maybe two, three times. Mm -hmm. um, and that's taking cardiac patients, trauma patients, medical patients, um, broad spectrum, not just one specific patient population. Right. Um, right. More so like when you're initiating a massive transfusion, huge blood loss, and you know, um, you're know you on round three to four of mm -hmm. resuscitation. And again, you know, lung injury versus your patient still there mm -hmm. from you know, not, lack of exsanguination. Sure, and so, you're not filtering it anymore because yeah. you're just having to yeah. get it in. And those Paul filters really do slow down how fast you can get it in. Yeah. Um, and uh, when you're really trying to resuscitate someone and you're using the uh, level one, yeah, I, I rarely ever see a, a, a secondary blood filter. I know the blood bank does some filtering, but, um, you know, how much of that is just embolic yeah. versus the actual transfusion itself, I wonder. Mm, sorry, go ahead. And cost. Yeah. We've been talking about blood transfusion mitigation for 20 years or longer. And it's always about this cost and, you know. It's a big thing with the hospitals now. But it's been the, it's been the big thing with the hospitals for 20 years, Kimberly. I've been listening yeah. to this same song and dance for 20 years. Yeah. And we really, I mean, how in 20 years have we not gotten to some place that we understand is where we are? You know, I, I don't... I. I don't know what your view on it is, but that's, you know, I've been doing perfusion. So I've been in a different realm than you for 40, you know, for a long, for 40 plus years now. And I've listened to this. I mean, whole companies have started off of, you know, off of transfusion reduction, you know, blood management, you mm -hmm. know, they call it blood management strategies and programs and all that kind of thing. And, you know, I mean... If somebody needs blood, they need blood. Correct. I mean, it's there's only so much you can do. I mean, you may be able to make an incremental change, but sometimes there's a flip side to the incremental change 
of withholding a transfusion from someone because they don't meet the criteria when they really needed it, and it may make a difference on that patient's outcome. Anemia-related hypoxia leading to end organ damage. So you let somebody be anemic, they're AKI, now we're acute renal failure on top of it, end up on CRRT, dialysis. What's the cost of that compared to... Treating we didn't ahead give of time. Blood. Yeah. We didn't give them blood. We saved one unit of blood. Yeah. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. One I know unit it's... of blood, and now we're here. But then, if one unit of blood makes the difference, is that patient really, you know, not going to have that problem anyway? Don't have an answer to that. I don't know. It's just a provocative thought. And uh, and you're right. You know, the lower your hematocrit, the harder and faster your heart has to beat, mm-hmm. and that can be consequential if you have somebody who has some heart failure mm-hmm. or ischemia or whatever the case may be. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's such a thing. Currently where I work, we have to justify every transfusion that we give, uh, especially on our post-op cabbage patients now. Mm-hmm. Um, if we give any product at all, we have to mm-hmm. notify the CMO and tell them why we gave the product. I mean, that's, yeah. Okay. Well, it is what it is. It is. You know, the challenges, yes, there's challenges. There's no question about that. So just a little bit about uh, appropriate restrictive patient population um, considerations of patients that fall into that. Um, your sepsis patients, ARDS, you know, we talk about COVID. COVID initially, of course, we had all those older patients when it first started, and then it went towards the younger patients who, you know, not a whole lot of comorbidities. Obviously, we could let them linger. They could handle anemia better. They could handle yes. tachycardia better. Um, initially, they can handle hypoxia better, and then they get so sick that they can't. Um, you know, looking at that and considering that specific patient population, um, uh, renal failure patients who, especially chronic renal failure patients who are used to a chronic state of anemia, obviously yes. you can put them in that restrictive box or bubble mm-hmm. and they're going to tolerate it a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got a question for you and I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I didn't interrupt you, but you're saying that septic patients and sepsis and like, patients are appropriate to restrict and to have a lower transfusion threshold? Early on. If you think early on and you're trying to um, think long-term, turn them around, get them off the ventilator quicker, reduce those days, um, you know, reducing minute ventilation by not volume overloading, stuff like that is where I'm saying those patients initially fall into that restrictive patient population. to me, it's counterintuitive to include sepsis in that because you want a higher DO2 or DO2I on those patients. And so, you know, the lower the hematocrit, the lower your DO2, given whatever your cardiac output is, you're just going to have to get go up a lot higher. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, Early on, ARDS very different than later ARDS. You know, what are their peak airway pressures? What can they tolerate? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where they kind of rotate back and forth. They go out of that restrictive to now we're in, you know, the more liberal. Again, looking at everything else going on with your patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we do tolerate a lot. 
um, and uh, patients tolerate a lot, you know, not just the ECMO patients, but the heart patients. We go on bypass and our rate goes from 34 to 26 mm-hmm. in the matter of just a few seconds. Mm-hmm. And uh, what effect does that have on a whole variety of, of things? You've, that's your fluid shifts and all of that stuff. I do think that, uh, again, you know, after all these years, um, I think we've made some incredible advancements in medicine, but I also think that some things that are so, you know, so uh, 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 significant in out that 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 affect outcomes, um, we've done we've we've not done very well with. Yeah. Mm. Some appropriate liberal patient population patients, obviously ischemic heart disease. Uh, brain injured patient, trauma patient for the obvious, bleeding patient requires blood. Mm-hmm. You don't fix a bleeding patient with pressors. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with, um, you know, your post-op cardiac patient. Again, they're going to be, if they're losing blood into their chest tubes, then fix your coagulopathy and replace your volume. It's not vasopressors. But you can't fix the coagulopathy if you don't have the red cells, you know, to fix the coag that because you know you you yeah. you 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 don't have a circulation then. So yeah. it's very complex. I want to know more about. I'm gonna let you finish because I want I want to know more about the uh, the process and how we measure it and how we calculate what we're giving when we need to give patients not just red blood cells for for oxygen carrying capacity, but also plasma, cryo, platelets, et cetera. So I'm, I'm going to be very interested in that portion of this. Okay. Or this next, the next uh, 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 paper or next uh, slide. So benefits of higher transfusion thresholds, uh, reduction of uh, risk of uh, anemic hypoxia, reduction of minute ventilation and work of breathing, reduce your prolonged time on the ventilator, and reduce overall length of stay. So obviously when trying to push this from the hospital administrative side and justifying why you're giving, uh, hitting the big points of reducing ventilator days um, and overall length of stay, you know, they'll kind of turn another ear towards you instead of Mm -hmm. um, giving you pushback. But there are people in articles that there is data there are published peer-reviewed articles articles that would argue giving the transfusion uh, uh prolongs your time on a ventilator but there's articles that having too low a hematocrit and not giving transfusions there's a yeah. lot of contradictory data out there not, this is not settled science by any stretch of the imagination and it may be because you and i though both human, are very different mm-hmm. physiologically and otherwise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Unless you... I just choose to identify differently today. Not that <laughs> I will, but I could. I could. It's okay today, right? It's okay. I could identify as whatever I want. Mm-hmm. So, but, so, you know, there is, you do agree, or, and I'll ask you if you disagree, please, please speak up, but uh, not, that I, not that you wouldn't, um, that there is contradictory data out there about ventilatory time, transfusions, or non-transfusions. Have a patient that we're managing right now 
on um, that's on ECMO. And again, management early on. We kind of missed a window of bridge to recovery, and now we're going down that transplant road. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, long rest early on, uh, give them aggressive carrying capacity. Could we have gotten him off sooner and not landed where we're at now? I don't know. And I think that's a, that's a, that's another topic that is so complex. And that is who is going to recover and who is not. And I'm talking about organ recovery. So Mm -hmm. whose lungs will recover and what does that really look like? And what does it mean? How are we defining it? And who won't recover? I don't know if this guy's lungs were ever good. I think we could have gotten him off ECMO, but his quality of life, I think, would have been horrifying. Mm-hmm. I don't think he... I think we could have gotten him off, and that would have been declared a success. But I, if his... It's how bad of a pulmonary cripple he was going to be. Right. If his mm-hmm. lung, Right. If his lungs are non-recoverable, you know... But, of course... You get a priority if you're on ECMO for mm-hmm. transplant. You know, he, if he got off and he was just miserable, where does he fall on the list? And there's an organ shortage. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just not a, you can't go to Walmart and pick out a pair of lungs. It doesn't work that way. Order from Amazon Prime. That's <laughs> um, what the public thinks. <laughs> it is what they think. And there's a real shortage of organs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and they're challenging to take out and transport from point A to point B. And then how many transfusions did this guy get? And how is that going to affect his matching of an organ? You know, I mean, logically, I mean, there's a lot lot to unpack. And mm-hmm. it's it, we can talk about this. You know, Vicky today, you know, my wife Vicky, she asked me today, you know, why do you always talk about ECMO? You guys just need to talk about something else besides ECMO. And I don't think that most people not in this business that, and she's an, she's anesthesia, but she does, mm-hmm. she's an anesthetist. So she does that, but she, you know, not in the, not with ECMO patients that we could talk about ECMO for the rest of this year, 24 seven, and still not completely understand mm-hmm. all of it. It's, it's a complex topic and this is a section of it. It's related to ECMO, but transfusion management is just one little teeny piece of a big giant puzzle. You know, I don't think a lot of people understand that. Yeah. Organ procurement. That's another part of this that makes it very complex. Please. Well, talking about different patients, you know, and managing them and considering uh, comorbidities, that's where reduction risk of anemic hypoxia comes into play. So again, you have a young patient, zero comorbidities, um, gets the flu or COVID, uh, ends up on ECMO, and you know y- you can let them obviously have a little lower carrying capacity, and they might do okay versus obviously your cardiac patient who failure to wean. Yeah, they are not going to come off. No, you, I agree. You have to be aggressive with them. And that's where it's tough provider to provider because you have some people that, you know, all the new literature reducing this. And and so they take one little 
piece of that and don't have the experience of managing a multitude of patients and seeing long term where they go and having that discussion as to this is why I'm advocating for this and getting, you know, somebody on board with you is kind of the, the challenge that we face even with our facility. Mm -hmm. Understood. Yes, it is an issue. Is that your last slide? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So we can go to the uh, to the next topic, which I think is going to be, you know, these are dovetailing together, obviously. Mm -hmm. So we go we go up this way. Uh, no, we close we close this. Okay, and then I go here, and it was ECMO transfusion threshold. No, anticoagulation. It was anticoagulation. Let's see. Hold on. Oh, I know where it is. Okay, um, here it is. And then presenter view, bingo. Okay. Dude, I'm getting good at this. You are. <laughs> so uh, just a little bit about anticoagulation management varies by facility, both what they're using, how they're testing. Um, uh, so just hemostasis disruption. Obviously, as soon as you expose blood to a foreign surface, you immediately stimulate inflammation and coagulation, which then leads to a prothrombotic state. Two most comp common complications with ECMO are bleeding and thrombosis. Our goal needs to be to prevent thrombosis in a patient and in the ECMO system while balancing and preventing a lethal or catastrophic bleeding event. We saw lots of all of this. Mm -hmm. And I never really do who was going to do what we did zero anticoagulation heparin, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, ECMO. ECMO, yeah. We did platelet yeah. inhibitor ECMO. We mm -hmm. did uh, factor 10A inhibitor ECMO. We've done unfractionated heparin ECMO. We've done Lovenox ECMO. It, 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 we've tried it all. But we couldn't compare any one of the different groups because it was specifically talking about COVID patients and managing them because it was different variants that reacted differently. Yeah. You know? Who was going to be prothrombotic? Exactly. Who was going to react in that way? Yeah. And who wasn't? Yeah. And then we had the patients who were no anticoagulation, basically running, you know, a sub-therapeutic PTT, but no problems with any clotting at all, the ECMO circuit, because we were able to measure oxygenator blood volume. We weren't having any circuit issues. And then they would have a massive cerebral hemorrhage mm -hmm. and just die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had three of those, three yeah. or four? A lot. Yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So your goal of anticoagulation with ECMO, find the desired dose of appropriate anticoagulation to maintain circuit patency by preventing thrombus formation while minimizing the risk of bleeding in your patient. So again, balancing that with what's your underlying disease process and what that patient can handle. They call it practicing medicine for a reason. No kidding. <laughs> Types of anticoagulants used, heparin, bivalirudin, and argatroban. Uh, at our facility, heparin is the first go-to, obviously, unless there's, you know, a history of HIP positive because of the cost associated with the other two. 
Um, heparin, the most commonly used anticoagulant used for both children and adults. I don't practice with children, so I can't speak about that, just adults. Heparin potentiates antithrombin-3, resulting in an inhibition of thrombin and factor 10A. Levels can be easily monitored and titrate, titrated following serial PTTs, and heparin has a relatively short half-life of 60 to 90 minutes in patients with normal kidney function and three hours in patients with renal insufficiency. Obviously, especially in my area that I work in, um, very useful when you have to take somebody back emergently or scheduled to go for surgery. Uh, heparin can be easily reversed with protamine and monitoring methods include ACT, PTT, and antifactor 10A. When I worked at Herman, we had in-house monitoring of uh, antifactor 10A, which was really nice. Um, don't have that capability in-house uh, where I'm currently at. We have to send it out. So um, we use ACTs and PTTs. Mm -hmm. We rarely ever do ACTs. Well, ACTs in the operative. Yeah, in the OR. But for ECMO, you remember the days when we would do an ACT every hour? Mm -hmm. And, of course, the low-range ACT is very unreliable mm -hmm. and has a wide variation you know a wide margin of error um and then we eventually now we just do ptts and i haven't done an act on an ecmo patient in five years at in least the, in the icu in the icu yeah yeah in yeah. the operating room for bypass surgery right. is a totally different thing right. but uh, but but th those are not low range acts when you're looking at ACTs, no, basically normal is going to be, you know, if it's 118 seconds, it's probably going to be 118 seconds if you run serial three or four times. If it's 480 or 520, it's probably going to be somewhere between 480 and 520 if you ran the same test three or four times. Mm -hmm. But if you run a, an ACT that's 180 or 190 in that range, 180 to 200, it's going to vary all the way from 120 seconds to 300 seconds because it, that low range ACT has never been able to, it's just not an accurate test. Mm -hmm. And uh, PTT has just been shown to be so, so superior in that, that range uh, versus ACT, and that's why it became the preferred method. We just stopped doing it because ACTs, we were we, we, we were all over the map, giving heparin, stop holding the heparin, not giving it, you know, and it was back and forth. Did you get your little drop out? Did you get the air out? Did you, right. you know, overfill your cassette? And, right, yeah. and technique is a huge, mm -hmm. huge part, especially, again, when you're dealing with a low-range ACT. Mm -hmm. Normal and a, uh, a, a full anticoagulation, Full and fully anticoagulated ACT is going to be, it's, it's either fully anticoagulated and there's no difference between an ACT of 480 and an ACT of 700. There's virtually, it's fully anticoagulated, mm -hmm. that's all. That's really what you're looking for. Yeah. Just a little bit on bivalirudin. It's a direct thrombin inhibitor. Can be utilized for patients who have a current or previous history of HIT or heparin resistance has been used safely in adults, but has very limited data available for use in neonates or pediatric patients. 
again, I don't deal with children, so that's just a little bit of research that I was doing um, to include for the wide variety of people that might be tuning in. Monitoring methods include uh, ACT and PTT. The half-life is 25 minutes in patients with normal kidney function and 50 minutes in patients with severe renal impairment. There's no reversal antidote, uh, and it can be used safely in patients with hepatic and renal insufficiencies. Then Argatraban, direct thrombin inhibitor, can be utilized for patients who have a Again, current or previous history of HIT or heparin resistance. And I think this is just facility dependent um, with what they have. And then lately, um, probably resource dependent as to what's currently on shortage and not, which changes every other week. Uh, has been safely used in adults and is the first pediatric labeled safe choice for patients with HIT. Monitoring methods again, ACT and PTT, uh, half-life of 45 minutes. No reversal antidote for this one either, and um, it does have to be dose adjusted for um, your hepatic patients. Traditional ECMO anticoagulation ranges, PTT one and a half to two and a half times the baseline or 50 to 70 seconds, uh, ACT 160 to 180 for bleeding patients or 180 to 220 for non-bleeding patients. And then a anti-10A, if you're utilizing that, of 0 0.3 to 0 0.7. Would you agree? Um, I saw the head bob. Well, yes, I agree with the, uh, with the PTT. Um, not necessarily up to 2.5 times the baseline. I think that's too high. I think 1.5 times baseline is more than enough, and I think uh, up to two and a half times baseline gets a little high, um, especially, you know, I mean, I think the cannulas tend to bleed a little more, the cannula site skin, anything like that. So I don't, I don't, I don't quite like to see it that high. The, uh, the ACT um, 160 to 180, again, I don't use ACT on low range, so to say your ACT is 160 or 220, um, is, is uh, uh, you know, th it, there's no way to know it's really 160 or it's 220. It's, it's too, too, much, uh, too, too much variability and mm -hmm. it doesn't work very well. Uh, as far as the anti-10A, I think, you know, around 0.3, 0.4 is reasonable. I think 0.7 is too high. Mm -hmm. That's my view. Okay. What say you? I like the lower range if the patient can tolerate it, obviously. Yeah, if you're not getting clumped, but I mean, mm -hmm. you won't. You know, it's funny thing about the ECMO. You put somebody on ECMO, and you, I think your point, your first slide was very important, very, very important. You're going to have interaction between the patient and the ECMO circuit. And there's mm -hmm. going to be an immune response. Um, certainly, the, the circuit is thrombogenic. Um, but, of course, the circuits we use, they have the oxygenator fibers but they don't have like in the operating room an arterial line filter incorporated in it which is a uh, something that is in, increases the thrombogenicity significantly and if you have you know a lower range on that and you're flowing a good high flow and your transit time through the oxygenator and your oxygenator is designed well where you don't have, you have good washout and you don't have areas of stasis in various parts of the oxygenator. So well-designed 
circuit is important as well. Um, I, I just don't have problems. When your flow gets low, that's a whole different can of worms. Mm -hmm. So if you're on VA ECMO and you're trying to wean the patient by reducing your RPMs and your flow, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about maybe later or show later, then your transit time through the circuit much longer, you, you gotta have to raise it up. Mm -hmm. VV ECMO, on the other hand, you don't have to reduce your flow. In fact, mm -hmm. you shouldn't reduce the flow. So you don't have to further anticoagulate that patient. You just simply keep reducing your sweep gas and your FiO2 until you can disconnect it. And you, then you just basically have nothing but a, a loop circuit in the right atrium. Mm -hmm. You're pulling and returning and it's a closed circuit. So you have no volume changes. It's the same. What's going in is coming out. What's coming out is going in all at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, we saw it with our patient that's currently on now, day 35, 37. When, no, this is day 45. Oh, no, 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 uh, during no, no. Day. During day, it was either 35 or 37 okay. that we changed his cannula. Today. Correct. Mm -hmm. But when we changed yes. his cannula and then had to change his entire circuit, and we saw he was a little bit delayed. It was like at 48 hours that he had that big SIRS response, blossomed everything out um, yes. that we kind of expected in the first 24 hours. But again, he didn't read the book and he did it at you know, 48 hours. Right. So you did see an inflammatory surge, a sort of a, a systemic inflammatory response that was not maybe severe, but it was, you know, it wasn't severe surge, but it was obvious. Yes, absolutely. So I had to have that discussion with both infectious disease and Palm Critical Care, who saw the x-ray, his white cell count, all of that right. went panicking. Let's take out all these, line, you know, line vacation, all these cultures, do this, do that. I'm like, look at his, look at his oxygenation, look at everything else, look what we did in the last 48 mm -hmm. hours that can explain that. Yes. And again, that's where, you know, stepping back, looking at what's going on with your patient and not just reacting to oh, that x-ray, oh my God, what's going on with that? Or mm -hmm. look at that uh, WBC count. And for those who, who, may, not, who may not know, uh, though I assume most, most do, um, but just for their benefit, when you initiate ECMO, that inflammatory process, the lungs that were looking like they were improving will get whited out again. Mm -hmm. So you'll see, you know, basically a very fuzzy image on your x-ray, uh, wet lungs. Yep. And uh, you're going to see a, an elevation in your white count sometimes quite significantly, but it's transient and it, it right. comes down on its own without the need for further antibiotic therapy. Correct. So you have to be, but you have to know that so that you don't react and treat it. But then on the other hand, if it is something else, you need to be treating it. Correct. So you have to sort of use, there's that judgment part of this whole thing again. Yeah. And you believe you're making the right decision, but there's always that chance it wasn't the right mm -hmm. decision. We don't know that until we get there. Yeah. We never know what's around the corner until we've gotten around the corner. We have no way of seeing. Right. Mm-hmm. <sighs> ACT, uh, inexpensive point of care, readily available test that reflects time of clot formation via the intrinsic coagulation pathway. Again, especially low range ones that are sitting in ICU, depending on if labs QCing or nursing is QCing, kind of saw that as a challenge um, at a facility that I worked at because, you know, there wasn't 
a whole lot of consistency on is, you know, who's doing the QC? Is it getting expired? And then you're, you're doing a QC when you need to do a test. And um, that is a little bit of a challenge, especially with the low range uh, ones that aren't utilized as frequently. Um, and a big, we saw um, it wasn't a low cost thing when you have nurses doing it that don't often do the ACTs and they get error messages and six cassettes later, mm -hmm. um, it's obviously not very cost efficient versus mm -hmm. um, we tried to kind of enforce, here's our super users by getting a handful of nurses checked off that could consistently do this. Well, then what happens when they're on vacation? And trying to accommodate that in a schedule is very difficult. So um, that's kind of a drawback of that. Um, it's very easy to take two and a half cc's, put it in a blue top tube, send it to the lab, and get a result. Mm -hmm. What does Danny, what do I always tell Danny over at St. Luke's when we draw any sample for any reason? Send it to the lab. Send it to the lab. Send it to the lab. <laughs> I, I, I'm not a big point of care testing kind of guy. I think yeah. that there's some utility to it, but I think that it makes more sense to have all of that um, and have it, have the infrastructure to be able to get it to them quickly and get a result quickly as opposed to trying to get people in the opera, especially when you're trying to take care of a patient and things are really hectic mm -hmm. and you need a lab. But that's what that's what they're for. But of course, you know, it's, I guess, not cost effective. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier to have us do it. But I don't think it's, I don't, I don't like it. ACT, I think you need to do that when you're on bypass. You can do that. Yeah, bypass, cath lab. But then yeah. you talk about different point of care devices. Doesn't matter whether you talk about the, uh, the um, uh, iStat or you talk about the, the Epoch and, I th you know, both are, both are, you know, they work, but they do not work for hemoglobin. Anything that is electrical impedance is not going to be very accurate with hemoglobin. So you have to have these various different algorithms in place to, am I on bypass? Well, no, I'm not on bypass, but the patient's hemodiluted. So I think I have to pick them on bypass. So you have to put that on there. Mm. And then it calculates, it takes that into consideration that a hemodiluted sample, when you use, uh, when you use point of care devices that use electrical impedance and not co-oximetry, uh, can, cannot accurately read the hemoglobin without the particular algorithm. And that can be very off. So you can transfuse, you can have a very low hematocrit, but it's not that low, or you could have a very high hematocrit comparatively, and it's not that high, and you don't know. That's why I send it to the lab. Mm -hmm. Again, utilized immediately, OR, ICU, cath lab, frequently used initially, then serial monitoring and titration is done using PTTs. Results can be altered in patients who are hemodilutional or hypothermic. Yes. Absolutely makes a big, the ACT, hemodiluted ACT, you know, very diluted blood doesn't clot as easily and yeah. hypothermic and cold blood don't clot. Yeah. Right? right? Absolutely. Cold blood don't clot. PTT, used to measure the clotting factors of the intrinsic and common pathways of the clotting cascade by measuring the time in seconds it takes to form, uh, it takes a clot to form. 
typically the standard for monitoring and titrating anticoagulation therapy for heparin, bivalirudin, and argatroban. It is not a point of care test run at the bedside, but has resulted typically within 30 to 40 minutes from lab. That's obviously going to vary greatly by facility. Uh, time of day, staff in the lab. Um, so for um, patients that are on ECMO in little community setting hospitals that um, have skeleton crews, obviously you've got to put something in place um, so that you're ensuring that they're getting the same standard of care as... Should they be doing ECMO? That's another question. So when you get backed into a corner and you don't have a choice and maybe like we saw this with COVID where there were just no beds. So does somebody in the middle of nowhere deserve to not have a chance for recovery and you leave them there until you can get them to the appropriate facility? Yes. Um, should they be there for a prolonged period of time and let it be a standard of care and let people practice? No. Well, I'm going to say something that's probably going to seem very harsh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's certainly provocative. But if you use that approach, then, and you consider the cost to the system, and I'm not talking about that individual hospital, but just the system, and the chance of recovery, if you put somebody in a small community hospital on ECMO and leave them there until you get them transferred, if you can ever get them transferred, and the chance of that person recovering, I think is, I think that the cost to the system and the risk and the loss of ability to service other patients with other problems that are more easily uh, resolved or have a higher chance of recovery and they get pushed to the side for this particular patient, I, I think is, 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 uh, is, I don't agree with it. I don't want to see people die, but unfortunately we do. Car accidents happen every day. People get cancer. Uh, we have wars, we have terrorists, we have um, just crazy accidents that happen. Um, and that unfortunately is life. And if we, there is just no way. And I think too, you know, not only did we see, and this is data that is, is, is actually come, it's gonna be published here in the US as well, but it's originated in England. They looked at all-cause mortality other than COVID. So they isolated anything COVID out and looked at all other cause uh, mortality. And there was a quadrupling, four-fold increase in all other cause mortality during COVID because so many of these patients had no access or could not get access, mm -hmm. appropriate access to healthcare. So yes, everyone deserves an opportunity. I agree with that 100%. But for everyone that gets that opportunity, who doesn't get an opportunity and how do we as a society choose 
which one to help. The one that is in front of us right now or the one that we predictably know is on their way. I don't Isn't this why you're doing this though? Wide population cover, you know, maybe those people that are practicing in smaller communities, they have this as a resource, can reach out, educate themselves, collaborate. But you're still gonna consume a tremendous amount of resources. You're gonna have to stop doing, the, they don't have the infrastructure to manage that patient and still take care of the other patients that they have. Because ECMO is not just a peripheral IV with right. D5W at KVO. Right. Right? It's a tremendous, res re it's a highly resource taxing process mm -hmm. and takes multidisciplinary uh, involvement uh, and can burn your blood bank out in a matter of minutes, okay, if not hours, you know, hours, but minutes possibly, just that fast with, a, with an event. Um, should everyone be doing ECMO? And I, 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 I question it. I do. I question it because I just think that it requires, I, 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 don't, I don't know the answer. I mean, maybe it, we should. Maybe we should be pushing and expanding this to make it so that it's like just doing CRRT. But because I think CRRT is still considered voodoo. It's like, oh my God, this is, oh, we're going to put somebody on CRRT. It's like we're doing a transplant, you mm -hmm. know, a, a five organ transplant, okay? But it's not. And maybe ECMO needs to get to that point. I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, that's the comparison that I could uh, possibly uh, 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 give here. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh. I sound very anti-ECMO today, you do. don't I? You do. And we've got Sim Man. <laughs> we're going to have fun with ECMO because I love ECMO. Mm -hmm. I just don't know that everybody should be doing it, <laughs> including me sometimes. Oh. God, I'm sorry. The, the anti-10A, anti-factor 10A assay is designed to measure plasma heparin, including unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparin levels. There are therapeutic ranges and prophylactic ranges. Therapeutic ranges for heparin um, are 0 0.3 to 0 0.7, and for low molecular weight heparin are 0 0.5 to 1.2. And then prophylactic ranges for heparin are 0 0.1 to 0 0.4, and low molecular weight are 0 0.2 to 0 0.5 typically run in addition to a PTT, uh, but they do take longer to result. Effective tool for patients with uh, suspected heparin resistance. Um, I know we used anti-10As, um, my previous doc that I worked with, with trauma patients, um, especially for our low molecular weight is kind of how we decided on keeping, uh, adjusting their prophylaxis dose while minimizing their risk for bleeding. Mm -hmm. Obviously, these pelvis patients, femur, mm -hmm. hips, um, polytrauma patients, um, very useful tool in uh, managing those types of patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you really have to worry about DVT in those patients. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really your problem. Monitoring when initiating therapy. In OR, ICU, ACT can be utilized immediately as a bedside point of care, but then typically 
transition over to a PTT, monitor every two hours until a target goal is reached, and then you continue to monitor every four to six hours per your hospital protocol. Um, once you get, you know, there's different therapeutic ranges for um, different therapy modalities. If at any point you have to stop your anticoagulation, then you resume your frequent monitoring every two hours until your therapeutic, and then may resume every four to six hours per your hospital protocol or per your protocol, like we were talking about a couple exactly. days ago. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Well, I, you know, well, we could talk about that. You know, although I have to admit, it worked out. <laughs> so I can't really say anything. I told. Uh, I told. Uh, what was her name? Was it Sarah? No, it wasn't Sarah. It was Amanda. I told Amanda, I said, that, that PTT isn't going to be anywhere near that, with doing it that way. But it ended up being exactly where they wanted it to be. So I was a little <laughs> bit upset about that. But, uh, you know, I just don't like to go, you know, like the heparin, let's say, is running at 800. Um, and your PTT drops to, it's been running between 46 and 50 for the past three days and it drops down to 39. So they'll turn the drip rate, drip up. rate up. And I would, because it's been so stable and just finally sort of dropped off, I would just give like a bolus of 500 units or a thousand units to move it back up again, depending on the size of the patient, move it back up again and then watch it for a while to see what it does instead of going up on the drip because that might just be too much. Then you go up, then you have to come back down again and you're basically just roller coastering. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, that's just not how I was taught to do it. And so I'm more comfortable with giving just a bolt, unless it's a dramatic change and you have to do both. Right. But what, you, what do you think? What do you think works better? Though it worked great, okay, I have to admit, they did the drip and it was perfect. I'm a fan of bolus, but again, been doing this 20 plus years. It's age-related boluses. Yes, age-related boluses. Yeah. And um, finding that happy medium that comes with experience, but then you kind of have to have something in place for your new nurses that, you know, says hard and fast here's where you can go mm -hmm. this is proven to be safe because they haven't figured out just like with titrating drips um uh, whether it's sedation or vasopressors you know mm -hmm. comes with experience well you know, you know and i that's you know and just as a just you know my you know my anecdotes i always like to have you know but you cannot read experience yeah you just have to live it. Mm -hmm. and you have to stay in this industry long enough and stay in that role long enough in order to gain that experience. The only way to get experience is to experience it. Correct. That's it. There's no yeah. other way to do it. Yeah. Can't read about it. Can't, can't hear about it. Can't mm -hmm. listen about it. You have to actually do it. And that's why it's so important for people to, that get into medicine at any level stay in it to be good at what they do. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. Look at these guys that are the astronauts and stuff. I mean, they, 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 they are in that industry, fighter pilots and then test pilots or whatever, and then they're astronauts, but they stay in that industry for decades before they get that chance that they've been looking for all that time. They don't ever just, you don't come off the street and become an astronaut. Right. There's a long road that you have to do to, to be good at that. And you know, you can do any industry, it doesn't matter what chefs, 
Yeah. They have to experiment. They have to try. They have to experience. They have to just do and see what does or doesn't work, and that's how you do it. That thing, medicine is no different. Absolutely. I would tell, like, new grads coming into the ICU especially, I'm like, you're a nurse working in the ICU right now. You're not really an ICU nurse till you've got a good two, three years under your belt. Mm -hmm. Then you can call yourself an ICU nurse. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it would, it would offend some people, but it's just the truth. Yeah, when you when you have the comfort to pause a powerful vasoconstrictor or take it out of the 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 iMed pump or the 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 IVAC, I used to call it, the, I remember mm -hmm. the original IVAC, and just open it up and let it run for a bit and then close it back again. Until you have the comfort to do that, I agree with you. You're not, yeah. you're not, you're not either, a, you know, perfusionist. If, if you don't, if you don't have the confidence to do this and you have to look at an algorithm to make every decision that you make and what does the protocol say, if everything has to be followed at the protocol, then you aren't a perfusionist. Yeah. And you have to, whether you're a perfusionist, nurse, physician, critical thinking skills have to be built with time mm -hmm. and experience. Mm -hmm. You can't just read a book and be able to process that real time. Mm -hmm. Or read the, read yeah. the protocol. Yeah. What am I supposed to do here? Yeah, exactly. The, <laughs> while the patient's dying. Okay, step one. Phone a friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, additional lab studies to monitor. Careful attention to CBC with trending of your hemoglobin and hematocrit and platelet count. Daily CMP to monitor and trend renal and hepatic function. Daily fibrinogen, plasma-free hemoglobin or LDH if hemolysis is suspected. And if coagulopathy is suspected, then you can also utilize a rapid TEG to assess platelet function, clot strength, and fibrinolysis. Not all facilities have access to the TEG. Uh, we're exper experiencing that challenge. Really? Mm -hmm. the, I, Oh, okay. We don't. I didn't realize that. I mean, it's such a useful tool, you know, and it's been around also. Mm -hmm. You know, TAG has been around for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. That's, and it's gotten so easy and simplified. The technology itself has become very easy to run compared to what it used to be where it was very, you know, technique dependent and you had to put it in there and the little needle would be moving around. You know, you had to be very careful with running it. And I, I, when I first saw it, I was thinking to myself, this is ridiculous. But now it's very easy to run and it gives you such useful information. Absolutely. When somebody wants to talk about blood conservation, again, is your facility utilizing TEG? Or are you guessing what the patient needs, emptying out the blood bank and hoping you're right? <laughs> two, two, two. You know, I mean, just yeah. because that's what you have to do. You don't know what it is. Two, yeah. two, two in a 10 pack. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you're doing. And I think having platelet mapping, very important. Knowing what the platelet function is, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, and it can help you tremendously to, to, to identify prolinemia or coagulopathy. Yep. This patient is bleeding and the tag is normal. There is a surgical bleeding problem this right. needs to go back to the operating room and you don't wait until you've bled three and a half liters right. and replaced it thinking it's coagulopathy it I, it, yeah. it gives you your answer which yeah. is this yeah but if you wait long enough then it's both yeah 
Now you have surgical bleeding and a coagulopathy. Yep. And that you really problems. Nursing considerations, minimize unnecessary blood draws, trickle feed these patients early on to minimize gut irritation and reduce risk for GI bleeding, utilize PPIs, um, which hopefully everybody is using in their facilities as bundles. Um, what are PPIs? Uh, proton pump inhibitors. Oh, okay. Uh, collaborate with the physician and the perfusion team to maintain the lowest possible threshold, especially if you foresee the patient is going to require an extended period of time on therapy. Again, collaboration with the entire team is really important. It's not just a uh, nursing responsibility. Maintain platelet count thresholds greater than 20,000 in non-bleeding patients and greater than 50,000 in bleeding patients. Man, that's low. Is that real? I mean, would we ever do that? I would never do that. Would we, I mean, would, would we do that? Would Mine I keep a little higher, but if you're talking minimizing product utilization, all of that, you can safely go to there. Man, that would be scary to have a non-bleeding ECMO patient with a platelet count of 25,000. I would, I would be freaking out. I'd be very, I would be, I, that would not, um, I, I wouldn't be able to rest with that. I wouldn't. Monitor, see what they're doing. Are they oozing, not oozing? What's causing their platelet dysfunction? That's what I'm a cytopenia. Heparin. Yeah. <laughs> Tits. Hit. Uh, maintain a hemoglobin and hematocrit threshold as directed by your physician and maintain normothermia in your patient. Uh, one of those that's really uh, not looked at enough um, surgical patients, trauma patients, um, elderly, zero body mass patients, people really underestimate what hypothermia does mm -hmm. uh, to they your do. patients. They do. I agree with that 100%. You know, we've said it before. We said it earlier. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a little cute anecdote. Cold blood, don't clot. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, for my perfusion colleagues out there and also your colleague nursing mm -hmm. nurses in the critical care unit, when we come, you know, the surgeons, they want to get done with the case. Mm -hmm. And if we cool a patient down below 28 degrees, 28 degrees or, or lower, and even 30 degrees or lower, and we don't rewarm long enough, you looks like we're warm, but we really aren't. And then the operating room is cold because mm -hmm. they don't want to be hot. And then the patient gets cold again, and then we go to the ICU, and they hook them up, and they're 35-4, and they're cold, and sometimes even lower than that. So then they start shivering. Mm -hmm. And if they do have any, any coagulopathic tendency, it's going to exacerbate it tremendously. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a neurologic injury and you need to stay colder for a reason, that's a different situation. But absent a neurologic reason... Um, we really don't warm our patients long enough, not necessarily make them hotter, but keep them warm longer to get all of the, you know, all of the deep tissue, the muscle, the mm -hmm. fat, everything homogeneously normothermic before we terminate bypass. I, I think they're in a hurry. They want to get done. 
they want to close, they want to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's especially if we use profound hypothermia, circulatory arrest, you really have to spend time warming that patient. You really need to spend time cooling them mm -hmm. to make sure you're cold and stay cold. You have rebound warming while you're in the middle of the procedure. But if you use selective cerebral perfusion, you can get away with that a little bit easier, really. Um, and you don't really have to go as cold. But if you do use deep hypothermia, you really need to spend a lot of time warming that patient to make sure it's homogeneous or you are going to bleed significantly. Yep. That's my last one. Oh, that was your last slide? Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Well, good. That was good.